flame. Oh, both your houses. They have made worms meet of me. A plague on both your houses! Much more dignified, hoping. It is this week, not as uh, not as grim and <laughs> brutal as an. Well, air raid I mean, it's a little grim. Shakespeare, especially the tragedies, are grim. <laughs> Wait, tragedies are sad. I'm always forgetting this. What you think they're good? Well, happy. I, when I was in high school, we went to Stratford because you go to Stratford trip every year. Yeah. Scott. Oh, we yeah. went and saw Romeo and Juliet one year, and they played it like a broad comedy. You got to see Romeo and Juliet. It was terrible. It was ter- oh. we're all sitting the whole audience like adults like Stratford people are sitting there like looking at each other like what's going Ooh. on cuz all of the f- like grim scenes were played like light and humorous and very strange but <laughs> <laughs> the point of all this is welcome to 14 months apart guys my name is Bob Barrow I am your one of your hosts and I am Jacqueline Barrow, your other co-host. Host, your other host. <laughs> your other host. Your co-host. Yes, your other co. There's a third co-host, but we don't let them talk. They're just absolutely. Oh, it's boring. Logan. He's just itching to be a part of this. <laughs> I can't imagine. He asked if he could sit down here while we were recording tonight. I, I can't see having your son in the room going well. Uh, no, so. either of them. <laughs> we want to thank you guys very much for joining us for episode two. Yes, thanks for coming back. If you're repeat listeners, if you're just tuning in, it's going to be a good one. Yes. Jack's so excited about one of these movies. It's Hellraiser. I'm only excited about what it is. For those of you, again, uh, that checked us out last uh, episode, we want to thank you very much uh, for, for joining us on this little tour. Uh, what we're getting into this week, uh, it's not a book and a movie, it's two movies this time. What we wanted to talk about is films that are lines in the sand, that we saw something, usually these happen at a young age, but you see a movie and it is... Not just, oh my god, that's my favorite movie, I watch it all the time now. It changed who you were. It's defining. Yeah. You can look at it and go, because lots of people can look at it and go, oh, I have a favorite movie. But I think for a lot of people, there's one or two films, especially if you're a writer, artist, filmmaker of any kind, you can point to a couple of movies that were like, whoa. But... I think for a lot of people, though, if you look at your life... Now, I might be being a little more dramatic about this. No. But you can look at your life and find one or two occasions where you made a decision and on the other side of that, you're a completely different person. Yes. You, it put you in another direction. It influenced you in a big way. Yeah. And in our case, it influenced us creatively. Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so this week we are going to be discussing uh, Jack's pick is... Bass Lerman's Romeo and Juliet. And my pick, for those that know me, this won't come as a shock. For those of you just joining us and have never don't uh, didn't listen to my other show, you're probably going to be going, this, what is this Creed and picking? Uh, I am going to be discussing Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. Very exciting. But we're going to save, <laughs> save the giant dose of over-emotional, uh, I promise, not hyperbole. Uh, for the end, we're going to start with Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. So, Jack, you have a very extensive theater background. I do, yes. Um, and this is one of the roles that 
was on my bucket list to play, and now I've aged out. <laughs> Unless I want to play, like, the nurse. <laughs> or Friar Lawrence, I don't know. See, that's the problem, is if adults tried to play Romeo and Juliet, they'd be like, get, you're fucking adults, like, get your shit together. I mean, uh, my friend Bryce, he just played Romeo um, in Northumberland Players production last winter, and he did an excellent job, um, but he looks young, so it works. Yeah, it Bryce works. could kind of pull that off. Yeah, because he has that very well that overdramatic quality. That's oh, he was perfect. For, it was especially for, for Romeo, Romeo, who's brooding and yeah, he did a wonderful job. Okay. Um, but yes, I have an extensive background with theater that goes back to uh, 1995, and this movie came out in 1996. So we're talking at the height of my <laughs> new film burgeoning theatrical career. Yeah, theatrical. It's very exciting. And my, like, newfound love of boys and relationships. So you just compound that all together, and it's this perfect storm of drama, melodrama. Yeah, 12, 13 is a terrible age to give young girls Romeo and Juliet. It's, like, the worst time to give it to them. Or is that the right time to be giving it to them? Because we read it in grade 10. Mm -hmm. So I had that... Introduction. I think actually I started with Shakespeare, uh, Midsummer's Night Dream. Yeah, is what we start in grade nine, and I was hooked right away. I got thrown out of class because of that play. Why? Because I understood what they were saying. Uh, because you're <laughs> well, like we we went to a, a, a very sports centric high school, so you're hanging out. You're in class with a lot of boneheads. Well, we are not boneheaded, so they're reading a Midsummer's Night Dream, and it's it's the baby play. Like, it's what it's you a good give primer. kids. Yeah, it's a primer. Well, they kept that. Like, they do read a section, which I loved because I can read it. And watching all of my bullies stagger around like a couple, like a bunch of drunk parrots. It was phenomenal. Well, that's why the majority of students yeah. really hate Shakespeare. Because if you don't know how to read it, it's embarrassing. Yeah. When the teacher kept asking, what is this scene about? What is this scene about? And I kept putting up my hand. I'm like, I know what it's about. And I got a little smug about it. And she asked me to wait in the hall <gasps> until it was done. Yeah. That's horrible. It was horrible. Mrs. Muir or something. I can't remember who taught me grade nine English. but That's yeah. a shame. Well, my primer was with Midsummer's Night Dream. We saw it at Stratford, I think, when I was in grade 11. But because I was so in love with Shakespeare and his iambic pentameter, which just flows off your tongue like butter. I know everyone doesn't share my love of Shakespeare. I get a lot of eye rolling in class. But I went to Romeo and Juliet next before I actually was meant to read it. So when I went to the theaters... So you, so you read it on your own? I read it on your my own. free time. I, my free time. I still have the book. I used to re- recite it at night. Like I was the, that annoying person in the theater who kept saying the lines with... <laughs> yeah, it was bad. I, I did it again for Shakespeare in Love, and I actually got shushed. Because <laughs> Shakespeare in Love combines more than one Shakespeare play. Um, but yeah, I went to see it in theaters with uh, my friend Sarah Basterfield. It was one of the first movies that we were allowed to go to alone that mom and dad approved that was a little bit out of what they would have allowed us to yeah, watch in the after past. After the Jurassic Park fiasco. Which we will talk about next time not next week two weeks from now (laughs) um but i think we were shocked because we hadn't seen anything like that without our parents 
let alone something that was so emotional and so dramatic and so gritty and sexy as if we knew what that meant when we were 13 or 14. Well, you're starting to get a handle on the concepts where the concept becomes attainable. Yeah. In a way that you can start to process it. You don't know what it means, but you feel like you should, like you're closer to the end. Oh, you feel like you should, and I already had felt that I had been in love, and I knew what it was all about, and this just really hit me in the feels. We were sobbing. I remember coming home still sobbing, like the kind of crying where your eyes are so red that you just can't, they hurt, your teeth hurt, even though we knew the end. And we had this conversation last night when Logan said, why were you so upset? you know that they die. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah. And the only thing I, I we could compare that to is when my granddad said when he went, when I went to see Titanic, probably for the 10 millionth time, that is the only film I don't want to watch because I know how it ends. <laughs> <laughs> and this is like, nowadays, if someone says something snarky and shitty like that, they're just internet hipster. Our granddad was so British and dignified that yeah. he could say that and go, I, okay. Well, it made sense. It, it yeah. made sense. He's like, the, the ship goes down. I know. Yeah. I don't need to see it. Yeah. Um, but back to Romeo and Juliet. It was just, to me, Bas, Baz, sorry, Baz Luhrmann. Baz Luhrmann, yeah. His style was something that I was just introduced to. I think he was just a burgeoning filmmaker. Or yeah. there was nothing that was so popular that he'd done before this. Not, not that I'm aware of. And I haven't honestly, I don't have a memory of watching this film since high school. Even okay. then, it's vague. But watching it now, that style, it's its its a wonderful mix of, like, post-Tarantino, because you don't have this movie without something revisionist like Pulp Fiction. And to say that you can go completely insane, mixed with kind of this anarchist, yes. manic, all very Western vibe to the well, whole and, thing. But it's insane restraint, because he's still working in the confines of... Shakespeare's rigidity, yeah. if you will. Well, that's the only thing about the movie that's rigid, is this dialogue at the core of it, but around it, he's just exploding in a way that you can't do on stage. No, and it's like, it's a dance. It's this punk, gritty dance. Yeah. That I, And that was, other. obviously there's Leonardo, obviously there's this lovely love story, and there's that beautiful language, but the actual movement, that high-speed movement. Well, you get this almost experimental edge to the whole thing. Yeah, it's an art piece. Where you, it's one of the few mainstream, borderline art house movies. Like, there's stuff that's got limited release, mm-hmm. semi-wide release, like The Artist a few years ago, the silent film that won Best Picture that no one talks about anymore, <laughs> like most Best Picture winners. But this was a huge event movie. Like, people were going wild for it, and it was everywhere. And it's... It's an experimental art film. I would say so. Way. Yeah. And it, it just happened to coincide with the rise of Leodum. Well, you're this bro Titanic was ninety eight. Yeah, so he still wasn't at the height. So the biggest thing he well, he had done some really good independent stuff. Yeah. Like we talked about This Boy's Life. This Boy's Life, Basketball Diaries. Basketball Diaries, Diaries which was an incredible film. Um, what's and <laughs> What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Big movie for the Barrow children. Oh, what's huge. And then I, I think that's what had really drawn my attention to him. And then when I saw this, I fell in love. Like, absolutely fell in love. I, I remember. And again, guys, just as a primer for noises you might hear, because we are in the basement, you're hearing the <laughs> water pump. 
You might also hear that beeping periodically. Apparently, there's a lot of technology in my closet. There's beeping in the closet? That I didn't know about. So I've been hearing this beep, which I really should have farmed that out. We really should have known. Upstairs. (laughs) We're going to look into that to make sure it's not our water system. Yeah, before now. So, uh, again, forgive us for water pumps, screaming children, beeps, barking dogs. If we ever make any money at this, we could get a really cool studio. We'd have to bring in the water pump, though, because people would be like, it doesn't sound organic without the water pump. Yeah, it's an ambiance. Yeah. Um, but back to Leo. Sorry, you were, you were yes, saying. I remember Jack's obsession because first of, like, fictional people she was in love with, there was Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> well, that was a baby crush. Oh, my God. But it was <laughs> it was endemic to the household. But when When Leo hit, oh God. it was, because that was still... You could go and buy a tiger beat and all that stuff, and there was. Do you remember my wall? Oh yeah, there was a mural hung with toothpaste because Dad (laughs) said it was a great adhesive. (laughs) So we spent a whole afternoon helping me plaster my wall. All we ended up was a bunch of posters with greasy Jonathan Taylor Thomas, Andrew Keegan, but Leo. I think I tore it all down for Leo. I had every poster from every movie he ever made, and it was an unhealthy obsession. I think, although. Is it really unhealthy when, like, millions of other girls yes. are... <laughs> yes. Yes, that's, that's the definition of totally unhealthy. There, I don't know. There was something about him. <laughs> well, he's he has that very wayfish. He looks kind of sick. Yeah, it's like, like grungy. he needs you to protect him because he's so flimsy. <laughs> he's he's a, bony. Yeah. <laughs> he's bony. I don't know if that's what I saw. Like, I was young, right? So... My tastes have changed, and now I am a firm Paul Rudd believer, which is interesting because <laughs> Paul Rudd is in this film. He plays Paris. And now, in hindsight, Logan asked me, well, who would you pick now? And, I mean, I would not pick the 18-year-old boy now. No. Not be, at all. A little awkward. <laughs> little, very awkward. But no, Paul Rudd, all he's done is lost a little bit of that baby sheen in his cheeks, but still looks the same. There's a picture of Paul Rudd aging. He somewhere. doesn't age, and that's yeah. why he's like the perfect specimen of a human being. What? I don't care what anybody says. Screw the guy that plays Thor. There's there's like, a vault in Hollywood with portraits of like Paul Rudd, Selma Hayek, Monica Bellucci. Because these people are going to say Monica Lewinsky. No, God no. Like, she's probably aged terribly. <laughs> these people just aren't aging. Now there's genetics, and they're paid to not age, so that helps. But Oh, yeah. It's it's ridiculous now, but it's also, it makes total sense that, especially coming into it, because all of his work was so serious before this, and you're seeing, we're seeing him for the first time in a very romantic you role. You mean Leo? Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay. And we're on a first name he, basis, okay? He's Leo. Lee. Lee. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just exploding. Yeah. Like, he, that's the one thing that you can still consistently make fun of Leonardo DiCaprio about, is he acts. So yeah, he does it. He does it well. I'm not a huge fan anymore, but that's fine. Yeah. What it what it meant for me then? I think mom actually has all my posters somewhere. Oh, she would probably. She has them stuck in a box with her baby teeth or something. Oh, <laughs> but I do. I do want to put an emphasis on the fact that there's so many things, pieces of this film that I fell in love with. Not just Leonardo. Yeah. That was a bonus. Not just Shakespeare. That was a bonus. But. When we talk about movies that define us or started to diverge our tastes in mm-hmm. terms of creativity, um, my writing tends to usually center around some kind of tortured love story, unrequited love. Yep. Um, in fact, my first play, my 
Mr. Holland's Opus. <laughs> the big. I wouldn't. It wasn't your first play because we had done uh, Modern Day Mother Goose. Uh, by well, that my point. first serious tragedy. Yeah. Now, when we say serious, if if you know Jack, you know what we're going to talk about. But it's important to remember that this play we're about to discuss, My Picasso. This wasn't a kids' play in the high school gym. No. This was in a real theater that real plays are done in. So, Jack, tell us <laughs> how we real plays. You're not. You're not in the. We were in the basement of the library for true, Mother which Goose. was great. But this was a play that I wrote that was done part of um, the high school alternative theater festival. That festival, um, and it was something that kind of just exploded out of me. Um, at the time, our father was having. Or experiencing some heart issues. He had a couple heart attacks. My grandfather died. I broke up with my childhood boyfriend. Uh, was still madly in love with him. So there was all of these things going through my teenage brain. And basically what the story is about, it's about a girl who is learning to deal with the death of her father. Uh, she's a painter and she falls in love with somebody. But it turns out that he can't love her back. And... For that reason, she ends up committing suicide. So there's a lot of elements of mental health, uh, mental illness, all of those things that I didn't even realize at the time were put into it. There's even a Greek chorus. There is a Greek chorus. And <laughs> funnily enough, my mom made my our costumes for the plays that we did, and I insisted that the angels, which were the Greek chorus that were kind of um, helping this main character through all of her struggles and narrating it, wore almost exact replicas of the dress that Claire Danes wears as Juliet. Yeah, when she's in the angel costume at yes, the masquerade. at the masquerade yeah. ball. And um, if you've seen it or if you watch it, you'll, you'll see that. But it was integral to my process <laughs> that that happened. <laughs> and the suicide scenes at the end were I based my... Because, of course, I had to write, direct, produce, act, sing, whatever. I had to do it all. I was born to play this role in my Picasso, but um, I based those suicide scenes off of Romeo and Juliet. And from there on out, almost everything I've done except for children's shows has been about tortured love, unrequited love, things like that. Yeah, it's it, it's fun to go back because I've, I've read pieces of Jack's new work and it's fun to still see those such prime influencers. Yeah. And it's... I honestly wish I had come back to this movie sooner because just from a filmmaking perspective. Well, you really enjoyed it. Well, I, I wasn't expecting to enjoy it as much as I... I remembered liking it, but there was... Even when we were younger, because when this kind of hit, I was already moving off in a very different direction cinematically. I was getting very heavily into horror by this point, and this quickly became, though I enjoyed it, it was Jack's movie. And it was also... It was a girls' movie, and this was back when gender lines were Which very is ridiculous set. because it's all about war yeah. and feuds Violence and fighting, and, which are yeah. typically associated with a male plotline. But yeah. because there's this small little snippet of these kids that are in love, it gets labeled as well. Romeo and Juliet is traditionally, if someone was to say, you know, oh the the man's play of Hamlet, Othello, Henry VIII, Othello, Macbeth, King Lear, yeah. yeah. Romeo and Juliet is oh it's Romeo and sexist. Juliet sexist it's intense like well this is that's the thing I'm watching it this time I'm like because I can look at it now and see the 
operatic gunplay from Desperado. Yeah. Or the, I don't know if his influences extended as far as, as uh, like guys like John Woo in this very intense, insane gunplay. Well, look at the Matrix. It's like this yeah. crazy dance that they do and the camera's turning and it's jagged, but then it's smooth. And that scene with uh, Harold Perrineau, yeah, where he's dancing, and it's that. Well, you're getting this Moulin Rouge. Very much, you you're segueing from these heavily choreographed, hard edged action scenes into very articulately staged musical numbers. Back into very calm, very almost theatrical. Style scenes. Well, there, it's not just that. The scenery itself, too, kind of adds to that with that broken stage that they have on uh, the Verona Beach oh. side. It's just gorgeous with the the darkening skies and and then all the illusions that they have through it, like the the bar that they go into in the beginning when he's mo- Romeo's mooning over Rosaline, and it's called the Globe Theater Pool Hall. Like, all of those little things that he just puts in that you only would notice if you watch it 15 times. <laughs> well, it's it's a film that rewards repeat viewing because it's because you're a lot of people we talked about this last night before this Shakespeare it was the stage. That's the only way to do it. Brana had done uh, Hamlet. Like but it's a word for Hamlet. word didn't take anything out. And it's and uh, Mel Gibson had done Hamlet. He, he had done a Hamlet as well. His own version of it. You can hear probably hear screaming upstairs right now, but I think Marty's got it under control. Okay, uh, just making sure it's not a long term. He cry. did Macbeth. Or he Ham- did Macbeth. I think it was Macbeth. Anyway, whatever he did, but they were very traditionally shot. Uh, Victorian age. Roman Polanski did Macbeth. Playboy produced it actually in the seventies. But it was very violent. But it still felt very British. It felt it, British. It felt staged, like it was intended to. It felt. St- Dodgy, like yes, I think that's the best way to put it. As well, it's like, oh look, we're seeing them. They were all period pieces, so you're not really breaking from that. Where this, this is a film. You couldn't take this film version and do it on a stage. Not no, not in the same way in any way. Because he's, I can see it now. Stuff I didn't see as a kid, but he's using cinema. To tell the story. He's getting away with all these things that you can't get away with on stage. You can't have visual allusions to things. Not in the same way. Not in the same no. way. No, and he uses music to tell the story. Like, it's almost a musical. The The mm-hmm. soundtrack is phenomenal. There's Radiohead. There's Well, that's Prince, the thing. There's Modern music in a Shakespeare play. You know, that's, I think, one of uh, like a thousand. Well, and I will state that this trend that happened after this was things like The Knight's Tale, which is a horrific movie. Um, I'm sorry. (laughs) But where they try and. We watched it on the bus. Coming yeah, back from it, that is not what's happened here because that was like, oh, we're just going to jump on this train of young people actually liking old things. Yeah, if look, we make them sexy, in a period piece. And I don't think this movie was intentionally sexy to get audience members. I think he actually was trying to make a statement with what he was doing, and it was groundbreaking. And I haven't really enjoyed anything he did after Moulin Rouge was not my thing. I, I watched like half of it, and I'm like, eh, yeah, it's not to my taste. But you, like, I think. My favorite part of the whole movie is, because it, it, from a filmmaking perspective, is when Mercutio? Mercutio. Mercutio. Is, they're at the beach, and he's standing in the ocean, and he's dueling with the tide. 
and yeah. shooting it. And that is, you can't, you could have actors say that to each other, or you are so foolish as to duel with the tide. You know, you can only say that, but to see it, and then after that beautiful a plague on both your houses scene, what happens? The sea and the storm comes for him. Yeah. And, and like, that's, I'm watching, and I'm like, oh, fuck, Basil Ehrman is such a good filmmaker. Oh, like it's And that's just... how I felt watching it the first time because it wasn't just, oh, this is a chick flick with some cute guy. It was everything all combined in one that just blew my mind. Uh, it made me appreciate what he was doing. It grew my love for Shakespeare even more. There's so much to be said for how great it is. In fact, my quote... And well, this is in conti- contrast. Continuing here, the quote. I am. I'm going to read you, actually, because this movie did get panned. Um, well, I can understand, because it's so different. This is... I can't imagine the meetings that he had with studio people going, I want to do an anarchist Western musical version of Romeo and Juliet set in 1996, Verona Beach. <laughs> See, I, to me, that sounds awesome. Nowadays, in, like, post-Tarantino world, that makes a little more sense. Whoops. But it also, then a bunch of people tried to follow suit, and all those Shakespeare adaptations kind of bombed. Well, and and this is what Siskel and Ebert had to say. Now, I don't, this is just the first quote that I pulled, because I was interested to see what uh, the panning of it was, but what they stated was, I have never seen anything remotely approaching the mess that the new punk version of Romeo and Juliet makes of Shakespeare's tragedy. Oh my god. And it goes on and on and on, and I couldn't even really read the review after that, because Siskel and Ebert, I think the melodrama is divine. <laughs> I, I don't like Roger Ebert. He, like, I know he inspired a generation of critics, multiple generations, of, and film writers. I think he did most of his best work after God took his tongue. For mouthing off about films for years. Oh, I've said it before. <laughs> I've said in my life I'm gonna get mouth cancer. But that he just he he waged a one man war against horror for years on the only grounds that it, he didn't like it. Well, and that's where I don't really Oof, enjoy like critics say what they want, but art and media is so subjective that one person will love it and give it an amazing review and someone else will hate it. And that's fine. That's why we do art because we want to speak to someone and it may not be everyone's. Well, it's where you draw that line. A good critic cannot like a movie, but they, if it's still a great movie, they, their job is to explain why. And there are a handful of great film critics out there that rise above their personal feelings and go, I don't like it, but I know it's really good. Anyway, Yes. Beyond the, the critic, is, oh, man, Roger Ebert just boils my piss. I just, oh. <laughs> he brings my piss to a boil. He makes me so mad. Okay, next time I won't look up a review by Siskel and Ebert. <laughs> I'll pick somebody more um, more dignified. I appreciate that. The sad thing is it doesn't get much more dignified than him. But back to uh, Mercutio. Mercutio? Mercutio. I honestly, like, Harold uh, Pernow is such a phenomenal actor anyway. And in I just want to take a moment that... There's great performances in this movie. And then there's a lot of people that marble mouth the dialogue. Like, Leo doesn't handle the dialogue well. Neither does Claire Danes. But Harold Pernow and John Leguizamo and um, Paul Paul Servino. So the 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 older actors do a good job because they may have been classically trained. Well, they just crush 
this dialogue, and it's just further proof that John Leguizamo, because he was in a bunch of bad movies, gets shit on, he's and he's such a so good. Actor. He can make his performances in bad movies are good around the bad movies. Yeah. Like, consistently. And he plays Tybalt, the Prince of Cats, oh in this one. God. And from the minute he walks on the scene, he's just this repulsive, slick guy that you just Matador hate. vibe to him, but where he's he does so, it so arrogant. Well. But um, Harold Perrineau's performance, especially when he does that... Um, Am I saying Perrineau? Like, Perrineau? Is that I'm how you say it? I think so. I just think I was pronouncing it wrong. Oh, okay. Um, when he does that scene about the dream sequence, mm-hmm. is amazing. Well, he's he manages to make it real and grounded for this movie's universe, but he brings an edge of drag drama to it where he doesn't abandon the stage theatricality, but he bleeds just enough of it into his physical characteristics that it works. It just comes out naturally. And yeah. I think really if you were going to give an award to the best character I would have to say it's Mercutio oh, in hands, this one. Hands down. And even Logan pointed that out. He's like, oh, I love that guy. Yeah. And not just because we just watched him in Lost, yeah. <laughs> which he was also great at. No, he's, this is, you could, if you want to explain to somebody what stealing a scene means. Yes. You show him any scene that this guy, and not even like when he's in the drag getup doing the dance, like just his scenes where he's just talking to people. He steals every scene. Or moving. He's just so, as an actor, he's so confident in the way he moves. Now, can we talk about, I think Shakespeare, I hope Disney wrote some checks to the estate of Shakespeare because no one has made more money off of the meet to marriage in an hour trope than William Shakespeare and Disney. Because it's, (laughs) it's, you, you can't even mock it because Romeo and Juliet is a part of our, it's not even just a part of the culture. It's, it's in our bones in Western society. Well, The trope of it is, it's just there. Those stories are, they resonated for so long for a reason, because they're good, mm-hmm. and people have this tendency, except if you're an English major and you're a literature dork like me, to hate Shakespeare and be afraid of it, but the stories are kind of everlasting. They really are. And... I've gone through stages in my life where I've heard people say, oh, Romeo and Juliet's about a bunch of spoiled kids. Or it's a, they're glamorizing suicide. But I don't really think that's what's going on in the story. Well, no, you have to... It, it's easy to, because it's 400 years old or something almost at this point, it's easy, you lose context. Context is gone. Of course it's gone. So at the time, he wasn't glamorizing suicide. This was a new story. It was a new story. Like, and it's kind of the way that things were done. People were married off when, or girls were married off when they were thirteen or fourteen. Yeah. So it was. It's just kind of a an echoing of what was happening in well, the Western world. It's the ultimate fantasy, I would think, of upper crust young people that you could escape these arranged marriages, these political marriages, where it didn't matter if you loved anybody. That's children's Well, no, even her father says, you will marry Paris, I will give you to my friend. Yeah. (laughs) And if you you, don't... You'll be gone. Beg, starve, die on the streets. (laughs) It's the door, Juliet. So, I mean, there's so much to teach out of this story, and I think this is why it's still in high school, um, is you're teaching about... Abuse, domestic violence, um, child abuse, gender roles, gender expectations, war between families, feuding that it's not even the patriarchs that are fighting anymore. Like the Capulet and the Montague, they're not fighting when they see each other. 
they have that scene in the police station. Yeah. It's the young ruffian hooligans that are carrying on. Even their kids don't want it. Well, it's these kids that they've destroyed. Because when you're... I, I think it's it's a nice little example of extremism. When you're born into that, of course you grow up to hate it. The old, the two dads, they have perspective because there was a time when they weren't feuding. Mm-hmm. So they would under, they would remember that time. These guys have grown up with nothing but politi- like a religious level of rhetoric about how much you're supposed to hate. Well, isn't that music. interesting? Mm, Some yeah. things never change. No, and it, that's the thing is the play. I think that's why updating it like this, people can still come to it. And it, I think you could why kids can still watch it is it it's a '90s movie, but not in a way that feels really tropey, really cheesy. No, we're not talking about Empire Records. Yes, no one's <laughs> perfect example. But no, it's 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 fun to see it again, and it's it's fun because I can look at it and go. Because I, I knew this about you, but I don't think about it often because we don't talk about it often. But to see the play or the movie again and go, oh, yeah, this movie fucked you, dude. Like, you were just <laughs> destroyed by it. Like, I, I don't mean that in a, in a romantic sense. It was sense. gentle. I mean, it just, it bought you a couple of drinks first, but it just had its way with you. Well, it did, and it really shaped who I am. I mean, mom and dad went through a phase where they were really worried about my preoccupation with suicide. Not that I was ever suicidal, but movies that dealt with that theme, the virgin suicides, I remember them being really concerned that I wanted to watch it, really concerned that I wanted to watch Romeo and Juliet. But it was less about that for me than it was about tragedy and heartbreak. Well, it's funny now you can see, looking back into the 90s, you had the, you know, the Heavenly Creatures, Virgin Suicides, yes. these movies. If you, I can understand why all the parents flipped out, but what you had was a generation of filmmakers and writers, men and women, saying, there's something wrong with how we're presenting women in cinema and in the arts and their ability mm-hmm. to take control of their own lives. Yeah. So we have to go in zero to 60 this. And you're probably going to miss it, but it's all of, really all about these female characters Take, and sometimes they're in such bad states, the only thing they can control is whether they're alive or dead. Yeah, and it's about, I think it, it hit me at the right time where it is about taking control. Not like my situation was anywhere near what this play is representing, but mm-hmm. it's about being strong. It's about feeling suppressed in some way. And how do you break out of it? But you're And still maintain the romantic lead. Yeah. You're not the villain. You're the romantic, desirable lead. So it it really defined who I am as a writer, who I am as a person. And yeah, when Bob posed this question to me, when you you asked me about what movie defined you, and I could think of like Wizard of Oz, um, Titan, all those, those are movies that I loved. But this movie, I think you're right, watching it now, you can really see. Well, you can say Wizard of Oz. I could say Ghostbusters, Mm -hmm. but it's not. You know, I love Ghostbusters, but it was just always there from when I was a baby. It's just in the background of my life, and I love it, but it's not... Uh, it didn't change me as a person. So it's, it's fun to come back and... Well, it is, and that, that aha awakening moment where I thought, I'm going to make write stories that make people cry. 
that is what I am going to do. And I think I set out on that <laughs> journey. <laughs> to this day. From that point. To this day. This, this created an actual change in, in the dynamic of me and Jackie. Jack, I apologize. Where, uh, where before this, we we both wrote and stuff, but this was very much when it became, to me at least, it felt like family gospel that Jack is the dramatic, serious one, and Bob is the funny goofball, mm-hmm. and that's it. Felt like the like an axe kind of came down, and we weren't like we had our own teenage brother sister troubles at that point anyway clearly but <laughs> there was a to me after this because the play and all that stuff it was definitely like you were jack was the serious one she made people cry and she did very, oh bob's funny i don't know why He's you gotta downplay that funny. comedy's so hard no i understand that and if you were funny and you steal the show like when you stole the show as abraham lincoln and the director's <laughs> cut <laughs> It's a play that Jack did for the, the same theater Stole festival. Stole the show. You won yeah. an award. Yeah, I played a maniacal Abraham Lincoln who was auditioning for a play, but they're like, you're playing Abe Lincoln. I am Abe Lincoln. <laughs> I think it was even better that you fell off the stage accidentally after your book, <laughs> <laughs> and everyone thought it was part of the show. Yeah, it worked. Trip downstairs. It's great. Well, um, anything else to say about R&J? R&J. No, it's... I, I covered the, the filmmaking stuff that I wanted to talk about, and it's because I have gone on this this journey of, of filmmaking and screenwriting and also just studying films, I, I think in a way that, not in a bad way, but in a way you don't, um, to see all of these intricacies at play and where he's drawing stuff from and the incredible European influence, because I think Bess Lerman's probably European, but it would sound <laughs> with a name like Baz Luhrmann. <laughs> Don't know if he's from Jersey, but uh, do you know Doug? He's from Canada. No, uh, it, it's fun. It's fun to see it again and look at it cinematically because I think that's the big thing for me. I took this time is what a wonderful example of cinema, the power yes. of the moving camera, and what you can do once you're unhinged from the theater box you know the stage however big your stage is you're limited yeah he made use of all of the different forms of media that he could yeah well you're getting sound yeah everything and that's that's what's really fun for me this time to watch it and i would watch it again (gasps) for that to just start picking out more and more little stuff well right down to the it you get it more, at least I think, in film at the masquerade when everyone's dressed as their archetype. Yes. But you could do that on stage, but seeing Paul, because it's modern, you know, dressed as an astronaut, mm-hmm. like that, you know, Cleopatra and Caesar and the angel and her knight in shining, all of that. I'm like, there's so much movie making happening. There is. There's so much yeah. movie making. And I will add one more point before we move on. Um, it also piqued my interest in, in the romance that surrounds Catholicism. Mm-hmm. It, I think because they glamorize it so much. And for a, a small period of time, I actually wanted to be Catholic because <laughs> because of the way that they portray it and the crosses and the neon lights and they make it so sexy. Yeah, well, it's like it's punk rock Catholicism. Yeah. Neon, okay, I think what we're saying is all okay, Catholic churches want to get with the times. <laughs> neon crosses. Well, to have, 
you're, you're taking these romantic visual aspects of Catholicism, but he's pooping right in their mouths. Oh, yeah. You, you have the choir boys singing a Prince song yep. in church. And there's very few, you know, pillars of hedonism. Well, and <laughs> Logan Prince. Logan said to us at one point last night, that's not what mass is like. He goes to a Catholic <laughs> school and he hates Friday mass. It, it's nothing like that. And I have since then delved into that world and vehemently turned my back on it. Um, but I have, I did write a play that explores religious creation theory stories, uh, the seduction of Adam and Eve, which maybe this spawned this as well. Well, you, it, you can always, once you find patient zero, you can start to trace mm-hmm. where it came from and what influences and... No, the the Catholic stuff. When doves <laughs> cry is, which it's funny that because you went into the Catholic stuff from a very romantic side. I I love the look of especially kids. Catholics are the oldest, and they have so much grim, beautiful, fucked up imagery and dogma. And oh yeah, you have this darker side. So you like the fire and brimstone. Well, I love the fire Old Testament. And, oh, the Old Testament stuff, but this idea of the, you know, like, well, the exorcist and all that stuff and these priests in dark <laughs> corners and that they they actually, what if there is a devil and they can do, do stuff? So it was, I was drawn is a good segue more to the dark side. This of is a that. great segue. In fact, I'm now like super excited that we've gone down this path because I was hoping that it would lead us <laughs> To our next film. Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. And to start off, I want to read a quote by Pinhead. This is my body. This is my blood. Happy are they who come to supper. This is my body. This is my blood. Happy are they who come to my supper. Oh, I'm sorry. I, it was written like that. Yeah, they, uh, <laughs> they misquoted Hellraiser 3. Bitches. So, keeping with the, the Catholic theme here. There's the, just the general attraction to, to darker... Things, so darker. This I, is fucking Fifty Shades of Dark. Which it's funny because this is nothing compared to the first two. I I have a lot to unpack about. Okay, well I got three. nothing. So Jack has <laughs> two. She has a big page of notes for Romeo and Juliet. I have my tip, my standard full page. Jack has one line. Can you read the line you wrote? I have no memory of watching this. <laughs> <laughs> which is true. <laughs> Okay, let's. I'm gonna try and get all this. Okay, out so tell us in in a way because there's there's a lot of stuff here for me. So my I, I've talked about Hellraiser three and my history of horror. I did that on a frame apart. I've talked to about anyone that'll listen, really. But I have very clear memories of being a, a little a little boy, five four five six years old. Being at Mr. Convenience, uh, the Video 99 across from Beaver Mead Park, and I'd get Ghostbusters and take it up to mom and dad, and then I would scurry away into the back left-hand corner of the video store, this now pizza place, into the horror section, and pick up... I had no desire to do anything. Reanimator, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, the cover for Serpent and the Rainbow broke my head open, but looking at these covers, just the covers, and being terrified but strangely attracted to it 
in pre-internet days... Of course, it's not porn. <laughs> no, but it felt that way to me. It felt like there was this... Because mom and dad said, no, it's scary, it's bad. You're not supposed to be over there. Yeah. But I also knew that there was another section behind the curtain that we weren't supposed to be near that either. That beady curtain. <laughs> yeah. So there was a correlation for me. And it's... I don't think it's the same way for kids anymore because they have access to everything on the internet and they can find whatever they want in making ofs. But at least it felt this way for me, and I've talked to other horror fans, and they felt the same way. When we were kids in the 80s and 90s, horror still had a capital H. These movies still had bite, and they had cultural weight. I remember being eight, nine years old, and somebody saying the the words, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre on the schoolyard. They'd heard of it. Well, yeah, because you couldn't go and look those things up. You couldn't Google it. And you could go and get a book. But that book was just full of grim, insane images. It was you, you didn't know what to do. It had this weight that these these films were somehow they were forbidden. That well, you had to rent them with an adult. Yes, you you or you had or a to, teenage friend or cousin or whatever. You had to find them. Somebody had to give them to you, and that these movies, while well, they're movies, might be able to bite you back a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I was very drawn to that idea. So I had seen a couple a couple of horror in quote movies by this point. I had seen Rocky Horror Tremors Picture Show? and no we hadn't watched that yet. Okay. Um Tremors. It's not a horror. <laughs> Army of Darkness and stuff. Not like good primer kid stuff. Yeah. But the the story that I've told a hundred times uh, and I'll tell it for the rest of my life, is the Mr. Convenience story. It was around my birthday, and I was about to turn 11. And I was at the Mr. Convenience with Dad, and I had worked up the gumption to ask him for something, which we didn't do a lot. And I said, Dad, what? I want to rent a scary movie. kind of looks at me like, well, what do you want to get? I was not prepared for this. <laughs> so I, I had had the copy of uh, John Carpenter's Body Bags, which has a very dramatic cover. It's a cute movie, seeing it years later. Very glad I didn't get that. But I said, I want this, Dad. And he looks at it. He's like, bullshit, put this back. If you want to get a movie, get you a man's movie. And he's looking around frantically to find something he recognizes. Right. And he grabs Hellraiser 3. The third one. Well, you're at a Mr. Convenience. You don't have a lot of options. <laughs> what, what happened in one and two? Yeah. So, but he grabbed it because the cover for Hellraiser 3 is the same as the first Hellraiser. It's just a picture of Pinhead with the box. Right. So dad grabbed it thinking it was the first Hellraiser and he was going to scare me straight. It was the equivalent of you catch your kids smoking, so you buy them a carton of cigarettes. Here, he'll the boy, did he go wrong? <laughs> I've if he about only this. knew what he was opening. Yeah, no idea. It was literally like he was handing me the box from the movie and went home. We were still on Denny Crescent. We moved the following year uh, in the spring. So this is around the same time I watched Romeo and Juliet. Uh, because I watched it with Sarah Basterfield at grade eight. No, we hadn't moved from Denny yet. Yeah, but it was around the same time. I mean, within like within, a two-year within, time within a two span. Year span. Yes, you are a hundred. Come on, <laughs> Jesus, throwing some sass down. <laughs> so we get home, and I think you were there, Crystal Lindsay, probably Paul Morgan. Uh, it was the winter, so the Chris and Tash weren't with us. Okay. And I remember putting it on, and we're in the basement, got to watch it by ourselves. We're going to watch a horror movie. And I was completely 
blown away. Jack and Paul and Chris, they're teeing and I have no memory of watching this, and I have a memory like a steel trap. Yeah. So this (laughs) really... They don't forget, and they don't forgive. No. (laughs) I really don't know where this went. Maybe I just didn't care... I was making out with my boyfriend. Probably, and I'm I'm just sitting on the couch, feeling we're it's in the dark, we're like alone. Mom and Dad aren't supervising this, and I this is going to sound very dramatic, but I honestly this is not hyperbole. The movie started, and I was one person, and it ended, and I was a completely different person. <laughs> it's crazy. I it, I I knew that I couldn't go back now. I felt like a character in the film that Pinhead had seduced that I was on this journey and I had to see more. I had to know more about what was going on. And that led directly full tilt into horror. Which is crazy because I'm the other way around. I'm like, that. yeah, we're good. And yeah. I kept thinking, like, why is that chick going in there? Why are you doing that? He's bad. <laughs> He's so obviously Well, bad. so you're a journalist. You got to find out about stuff. No, <laughs> go home. Live in your penthouse. Yeah. <laughs> that a, a bad reporter's salary <laughs> paid for. Smoke your thin mint cigarettes yeah. and menthol. What are they called? <laughs> <laughs> Matinee Slims or something. But that's, like I said, talking about this idea that horror felt forbidden at the time, culturally for kids, I felt like I had something that was mine now you very quickly dismissed it you would watch occasionally watch a horror movie with me but i, I remember watching like the exorcist with you and you laughed the well, whole it was time. ridiculous when that I, girl pops up and her head spins around she's all green and sweary and <laughs> that's that might be the best one pair or one sentence review of the exorcist it's ridiculous she's all green and sweary <laughs> well she does that thing with the cross yeah. and i just I do not, horror movies do not resonate the same way with me. Either they disgust me, they disturb me, um, or they're laughable. Which I I'm, I don't mean to laugh at what no, you love. No, but no, no, it's, it's, I can only defend, I will defend a lot of horror movies because they're just excellent films. Hellraiser 3 has a good, hard chunk of cheese that comes along with that movie. Oh, those big, fat centipede things, centibite <laughs> things that come out and they're all done up with cheesy makeup. It looks like their makeup's made of cheese. Like, that's how bad it is. I know the is. makeup artist that did it, and it's actually, some of it's quite good. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure it yeah. is. And this is where we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of this show, because we agreed on everything with Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> we agreed on most things with the other one, but this yeah. movie I friggin' hated. Marty and I, so we watched it with Logan and my husband, and we kept looking at each other like, is this over yet? <laughs> and I had, I had seen it already just this past Saturday. I went up, or the previous Saturday, I went to Toronto to see it on 35mm <laughs> so on the big screen. Ever it was that. a fucking pilgrimage for me. Like, I was going to Mecca to bring the mountain to Muhammad. <laughs> like, I, I went to Mecca to see this movie. But it's to try and, okay. Because I'm not, I'm not defending the movie. It needs no defense. But just to try and explain a little bit to people listening and to and to Jack what it was. Because I'm sure you were watching and going, "My brother's a smart guy. He's a fucking idiot. Like, what? Oh, why this?" Yeah, I, I mean, I because I know you, I get it, but I don't really. So, I found. Like, the violence is obviously very shocking for kids. It's shocking even from, like, the 90s standpoint, too. And it's very watered down compared to the first two. This movie's very, very soft compared to the first two films. But I think coming into... 
because Pinhead's a slasher in quotes, but he's really not. But as my first big franchise monster compared to Freddy Krueger or Michael Myers from Halloween or Jason or Leatherface, mm-hmm. because it's Pinhead, Pinhead wants, he doesn't just want to kill you. He wants to hurt you and he wants to keep hurting you. And then he's going to do it for so long that you're going to enjoy it. No. And there were, those concepts were huge to me. Like they were vibrating my brain as a little kid. But also his presentation. This movie has some of Pinhead's best lines. And Doug Bradley, I'll get to the Doug Bradley story in a minute. But hearing... I might have said that because it was pretty <laughs> drunk. But hearing him do those wonderful monologues with his head in this goofy makeup that's lit improperly and it's just his head in a statue. But even now I find that very attractive when he's talking to Monroe or talking to the girl. And he's just, like Pete Atkins, the guy that wrote 2, 3, and 4, said, unlike the other pantheon of horror villains, Pinhead wouldn't feel out of place turning a phrase with Oscar Wilde because he comes from a literate point of view. Well, he comes yeah, from a book. and I think when I'm going to look for things that I can connect to or maybe not hate as much, um, I would say that it's the first character that is a, a horror character that is so refined Yes, that that's even scarier. It's, it's like a and this is horrible to say, the Paul Bernardo type where you don't expect that to happen. You trust somebody with a a nice British accent like your grandfather. Well, that's the thing is you can forget that he's got all those pins on his face mm -hmm. because he's saying, I can't think personally other than Hannibal Lecter, maybe. Right, yeah, there's another one. You could see another horror villain that could use the word banal in, in turning a phrase on it. And that to me was so incredible that I went on and I wrote smart villains. There's a screenplay I you wrote always do. called Civilized and it was a family story of Seal Billy's picking up this woman off the street and keeping her as a brood sow for 25 years. But Lovely. The, the, <laughs> the hillbillies, instead of being just plunky, inbred, whatever, they're so eloquent and well-spoken and erudite that's, and refined. That's terrifying. Because they believe what they're saying. Pinhead, when he talks, there's no doubt. He is what he's saying. He believes it, and he makes you believe it. And as an 11-year-old, I'm just... I don't... Because I didn't... The only British person in our life was Granddad, our grandfather. Mm -hmm. And he was a pillar. They don't make men like no, that No, he was a beautiful, refined gentleman yeah. who never put a fingernail. This could not be any less pinheady, but intelligent, well-spoken, said yes. exactly what he meant, knew everything. About so, everything. Yeah. So that, to me, resonated. Not that Granddad reminded me of Pinhead, anyway. No, but this idea of this a British voice to us. I even yeah. changed my Siri to be a British male because it's comforting. <laughs> And it's, I think the other big thing is, I, I get teased in certain circles about this, but I have a, a huge soft spot for sequels. I love Ugh. sequels. It's one of the best things about the horror genre, is just franchises galore. There's only two sequels that ever worked, in my opinion. Return to Oz and Anna Green Gables. 
Okay, that Two. moment there for any listeners will explain exactly why we're doing this show. <laughs> this is that's the divide. That is the Grand oh, Canyon a clear, <laughs> between clear me and my sister. It's right there. That says the whole thing. But watching this movie, I can look back, and this movie is patient zero for so many things for me. But looking back and seeing these flashbacks, that the film looked a little different there's other movies. Wait, this is a part three. And I'm having this real is that all this stuff is happening in my brain in the hour and 20 minutes this movie's on. And I'm like, there's more. I can learn more. I can go and find out. And then I went and watched the first Hellraiser at Paul Morgan's house. I think it later. would have been helpful to watch it first because I'm still like super confused. Uh, <laughs> you'll get more information, but I, I've had this happen a couple of times. I had this exact same experience with Phantasm and it was dad again did it to me. <laughs> you have dad to think. For so, he is so responsible for all this horror shit and I've tried to tell him and he just leaves the room. <laughs> But he did this with Phantasm. Uh, I went to the... We were in Greenlaw at this point. You were working at Blockbuster, and I'm renting movies like crazy, going through all the franchises. Did I not bring them home for you for free? Uh, or you'd be there, or might have been before. But anyway, the, the, the point is... I digress. I, I wanted to get Phantasm. And Dad, in his dadly wisdom, he's like, don't get the old one, get the newest one! Because he's thinking it's like James Bond. Like right. That, or Star Wars. It just like, gets better with age. Yeah, that's a sequel to Dad. Is James Bond or Star Wars or Star Trek. Yeah. The Phantasm movies are so intertwined. You have to, They all butt up against each other, even though they were made 20 plus years apart. So it would be like watching Harry Potter out of order. Yes. It would be lost. But with Phantasm 4, there's 20 minutes of unused footage from the first movie in it. And this was 1998, and the first movie was 1979. Whoa. Don't get me wrong on this. I'm sorry if I'm wrong. So I'm looking at this, and I'm like, he planned it all along this way. It's the most brilliant thing ever, ah, which turned out not to be the case. He just went by the seat of his pants. But it just reinforced that idea of a mythology, like a dogma that I get to find out. Whether it was Hellraiser or Nightmare on Elm Street or the Dead movies, uh, Romero's Dead movies, going through and finding little infinite. So is this why you like the Avengers oh, yes. franchise so much? Duh, yeah, completely. Okay. Because they're do sorry, not duh. Apologize. <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> Dummy. Fucking moron. What Come did, back upstairs. What did Sawyer call you the other day, you dumb baby? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was my three-year-old. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. But no, that's exactly why. Because the the connect the interconnecting and now Hellraiser unfortunately has one of the worst franchise track records because it very quickly took a dump in its own mouth and didn't stay strong <laughs> throughout its ten sequels. But I was just bowled over by it, and also because you very quickly said no, this isn't for me. Yeah, and it wasn't. It Dad isn't. didn't really care about it, but Mom started telling me stories about going to the drive-in and seeing the Hills of Eyes and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I had, to this day, I had my mom on such a pedestal. I was like, Mom's saying this. It must be even better. So it kind of became a little bit our thing with me and Mom. But it was something that quickly became mine. Yours, yeah. And I think it was grade 7 Christmas. Mom and Dad... I guess she talked him into it. They bought me the first Hellraiser and Children of the Corn, which is now right. a poster up on my wall for Christmas. Which I watched with you. Yeah. And those two movies are the seeds from which my collection and everything I've done since has grown. Now, to be fair to both mom and dad, 
they both enjoy a good slasher horror movie. Like I remember yeah. growing up list, or watching movies with them where someone's killed in this horrible way and they both cheer and go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is sick. <laughs> it's sick and fucked up, but it's, it's fun. It's, it's finding the fun aspects. Yeah, which is how I look at horror is yeah. like it's a freaking romp. And there's lots of them that are, that are just going to kick in the pants, let's go have fun. And and I, you know me, we both have a tendency to do this, but I, I get very serious about things. Really? And I get very locked into it that it's... I hadn't noticed. <laughs> just like we talked about this last week, or last episode. I think we'll probably <laughs> talk about it in every fucking episode. I go, I go through ebbs and flows of that. <laughs> but it was, it was so serious for me, and coming off of this... I saw the first Hellraiser at Paul Morgan's house. And Paul Morgan and his family, bless their hearts, their house was creepy as shit uh, when you're a little kid. I wasn't allowed to go there. I was only allowed to go a couple times. Well, it's because he was your boyfriend and we know what they do. <laughs> Sinners. Um, so we go get McDonald's and we rent movies. And Dad's like, you can get two horror movies and a comedy. So we rented the Power Rangers movie, which yes. is still dope. I'm standing by that. <laughs> and Pet Cemetery. And Hellraiser. Pet Cemetery. I never want to watch again. Oh my god, with Zelda and the spinal meningitis is still horrifying. But we watched those two movies. Paul goes to sleep and I'm left alone in their 100-year-old creaky house with fish tanks and <laughs> dogs everywhere <laughs> watching the first Hellraiser thinking I was prepared. You're watching it alone like he you, wasn't even awake? He was asleep. We were on the pillow in the living room and oh he's sound asleep god. next to me. And the Comparing the first Hellraiser to the third one is like comparing The Wizard of Oz to Return to Oz. Like, they're so diametrically opposed oh, tonally. completely different. That's what it was like. So I'm just, I didn't sleep. I just waited for dawn or death. I almost feel, and maybe you'll be as happy with this statement as I was when I watched How Much You Like Romeo and Juliet, that I would like to watch the first Hellraiser. Mm-hmm. Um, just so that I can really get a sense of what's going on and why it is so appealing. Because I wonder, do you like this movie because it was your first introduction and it's nostalgic? Or do you like it because you actually like what happened? No, I. there are certain movies that I just have a nostalgic soft spot for. Like the Power Rangers movie. It's fucking retarded, but I have a nostalgic spot Don't for it. Don't say that. Sorry, I apologize. <laughs> it's fucking stupid. But I still love it. Okay. But Hellraiser 3, I can put on, and obviously I have very big rose-colored glasses for it. But no, I find I love the the... Pinhead and Elliot Spencer battling each other. I have a big crush on Terry Farrell, who's she's, Dax. She's gorgeous. And, and she's, she's Dax. She's Space Nine. <laughs> Even in those early 90 clothes, she's yeah. gorgeous. <laughs> but no, I, I can genuinely watch and enjoy this film. Uh, it's not, I can objectively say it's not as good as Hellraiser 1 and 2. Those are much more okay. intense, interesting, literate films. But I'm so tied up in Hellraiser, that, especially Hellraiser 3, that I can't get over it without to tell the, the Doug Bradley story. When I, was, <laughs> when I was 19, I was getting ready to go to film school. I volunteered for the first Room Org Festival of Fear that happened at Fan Expo every year. Okay. And it, it's important to really understand how gooey and lame I was. We had the first meeting for it uh, at a club, a goth club that's closed now. It's called the Pussycat Club. And I'm coming from out of town. Mom and dad don't just put me on the train or whatever and send me. No, they drive me (laughs) 
to the to the golf club in downtown loser. Toronto. You yeah. loser. And mom and dad are like, now I find it. Mom kept saying, like, just leave Brian. He's out of the car. Just, let's get away from him. Well, we come around the corner, and in front of the club is horror people. Like I've seen in magazines, like they're all in oh black God. t-shirts. I'm like, oh, it's mine. They're for me. I would just want to run. As mom just grabbed his arm and just walked him back around the Dad, block, yeah. so they didn't see God me. God bless him. So I go to this and as a volunteer, and I'm just like I'm so like I'm about to go to film school. I've been reading Room Org for a year. I'm collecting hard at this point. Like I'm just ready. And at the event convention where I'm running screening rooms and a director shows up named Matt Laureate who made an awesome uh, comedy zombie pseudo-musical called Dead and Breakfast, but zombies at a bed and breakfast. And he's just hanging out. And then we go to the party, the Friday night party, and it's at a club that I also think is closed now. It's the Big Bop. And it's a, a goth rock club that looks a bit like the bar from Hellraiser 3. And I'm, again, 19. I've been drunk three times, maybe, <laughs> smoked weed a few times. Like, I'm green. Yeah. Like, I'm, like there's still water running down my neck because I'm that wet behind the ears. You're a BB. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous. So, all and I'm hanging out with Hayden and all these Toronto people, and they're older than me, so they're all drinking. And Matt Laureate shows up, and he's like, Bob, man, start drinking. So I'm drinking, like, smeared off ice. It's all very sad. And Doug Bradley's there. Because he's hosting, he's judging the costume contest that night. Excuse me, could you just clarify again who Doug Bradley is? Pinhead. Oh, he actually... He's the actor that plays <laughs> this Pinhead. This is how much I cared. <laughs> yeah. He's the actor that plays Pinhead. Hello. Yeah. I'm here. <laughs> sorry. So sorry. Matt's like, because they could see how green I am. They're like, you know, yeah, he'll do anything. It's like, go, go, Bob, go talk to him. He said, you told me the Hellraiser story. Go talk to him. I'm like, I cannot go talk to Doug Bradley out in the wild. Oh. Going up to his <laughs> table and getting an autograph, which I don't know if that's the sound of me tapping the tape that I got Doug Bradley to sign. Well, isn't that cute? Isn't it cute? It's monumental. <laughs> so he's like, do it. And I, I can't, man. Like, I've had a few more drinks. So he's like, more drinks? So he's just getting, I'm just ham dinner with like, Four Smirnoff. Oh, ice. just make it even better. Approach somebody sloppy yeah. drunk that you. So they push me over to him. Oh man! And like uh, uh, Mr. Bradley, I'm a volunteer with the convention. Oh dang! And he's just so polite. He's British. So British. Oh yeah. In real life. Yeah. So polite. So British. So warm and welcoming. And he shakes my hand. And I'm humming. And I'm like, I gotta say, it's a little, it's a little creepy being in here after Hellraiser three. It kind of looks like the bar. And he throws his head back and kind of laughs. And then as he leans his head forward, Doug Bradley, who I was just talking Tell me he to, kissed you. is gone. God, fuck, if he kissed me, that'd be amazing. This is like leading up to yeah. this his, He's gone, and he's brought the pinhead character out. His face has changed, his stare's Ooh. different. It's all, he's not in makeup, obviously, but it's all little things with his face. No, but it's like that split. And... I've heard people tell these stories where they meet somebody and they'll do a character for them and it's like a wash across the face. Creepy. And just stares right through me and says, time to play. Now, the back, the front 90% of my brain is imploding. The back 10% of my head is going, well, the line is, shall we begin? But it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. You were going to correct no, your head? No. There was 10% of my rational brain You would have ended up dead by those centaur yeah. bite thing. Centibites. Centibites. Uh, so that's, I'm just like, 
He's like, I have to go do the cards. It was lovely speaking with you. And I'm like, yes. And I turn around, and Matt, Laurie, and Hayden, all those guys are just like, dude, I'm like, did you hear that? Like, we heard the whole thing. We heard it all. So he gets up on stage to do the costume contest, and everyone's cheering because it's, if you've never been to a horror convention around horror people, it's you don't really get a feel of the level of fandom. Like, in horror circles, someone like Doug Bradley is like a beetle. It's a big deal. And he gets up on stage, people are losing the chair, and he's like, thank you, thank you. He's like, one of your numbers has expressed a certain concern about being in a venue like this. No way! After a Hellraiser film I made. <laughs> and everyone's cheering and laughing, and the guys are all like, pounded me on the shoulder, like, oh he's talking God. about He's even know. doing a shout-out to you, oh, Bob. God, I just died. So that... All that comes together. And I years later at one of the Festival of Fears, I met Paul Jones, who is the lead effects man on this. And he's so nice and welcome. We chat every now and then on Facebook. He's the nicest man. Also Not to British. be confused with Tom Jones. No, no. <laughs> Paul Jones is so great. And all of, like, you can't, just the meeting story alone is overwhelming. But when it's your first movie and it's... How come I didn't get to meet Leonardo? Because well, <laughs> well, he's that's too not good fair. to come. You should be into horror. <laughs> I, I, not All fair. these people on my walls I've met. <laughs> They're so accessible. <laughs> <laughs> because they need the guts to get paid. They need some money. You don't, get, you don't make it hard bank. But no, it's... I As a writer, I've chased dialogue like him when I can turn a phrase over like that like the phrases he uses in Hellraiser 3 it is very eloquent I've got to give it that the Cinnabons not so much (laughs) you're just doing it on purpose now (laughs) yeah I am yeah I've been holding that one for a while. <laughs> the Cenobites. Yeah, kinda of take che- Oh, Butterball. Oh, the Cinnabon. That's one of the Cenobites is named. Oh, Butterball. that's what though that's why they looked familiar. Yeah. For those of you who don't know what I'm looking at because you can't <laughs> see me because we're on radio, um, Bob has these action figures on his wall that I'm staring at right now with those ugly Cenobite things. I have the for people in the know, I have the the real toys, the NECA figures that they did years ago. And I have Pinhead, Chatterer, and Butterball, but I had to have CD the DJ and Barbie. See, okay, this is, to me, (laughs) not the only point they lose me, but an eloquent antagonist Mm -hmm. who has henchmen by the name of Butterball. Well, no, to be fair, he was called in in Hellraiser 1 and 2, because that's when Chatterer and Butterball are in those ones. They're referred to in the credits as the Chattering Cenobite. The Butterball Cenobite. But why... Okay, so... It was only so people could read the credits and go, oh, the fat one. Oh, the chattering one. I was confused about... So he's really powerful. Yes. Why does he need henchmen? Uh, Every good villain has a couple of henchmen. It just seemed to me that he didn't want to get his hands dirty after a while. Okay. To give you some background, the Cenobites are an order of priests in hell. So when priests go places, they go in teams. And when they would, because they would each specialize in different things when they would show up, when you'd open the box. So in the book, because, well, there's more than one because they're in the book, the Hellbound Heart, which is a novella in my Clive Barker section on my bookshelf. Clive. So, but you'll get more information. But the, the names, like, nobody, he wasn't named Pinhead. He was named Lead Cenobite in Hellraiser 1 and 2. Ah. The public named him Pinhead. And it's not said in the movie until the third movie. 
They even make fun of it in the sequel book that Barker wrote years later called Scarlet Gospels, where they're, the ultimate insult to piss him off is to call him the pinhead. So, no, it's... I, I can't... I, I don't want to start going in circles either on this, because I can talk about Hellraiser for No, we'll wrap hours. it up. But it's... I can trace a direct through line in everything that I've written, done to this moment. And and I can see that now. Yeah. I can see your main characters being very well-spoken. Mm-hmm. Um, even in your experimental ones, um, the ones you wrote, the one you wrote about the boys, the twins. Oh, in um, Growing Boys. Even Janet, is that her name? Jan, the sister? Yes. Yeah. She's very well-spoken and creepy, and everything she says is methodical and well thought of. Well, I like this. Now I get it. Yeah, it's all it's all very there. And I also write about doomed characters. The idea is that once Pinhead's got a hold of you, you're doomed. Sure, a couple of people escape his grasp, but mm-hmm. you're doomed. You're not just doomed. You're doomed forever. So even in my short story work, my when you die, you usually the setup of the story is that's not it. Mm-hmm. You know, like in um, play ball where the kid gets sucked down into the infernal ball game. That ball game's never going to end for him. Yeah, there's a lot of. Um, I see that in your stories where they get pulled into another realm. Yes, and that's Barker into wrote hell. extensively that about that himself. That there's hell another side to something that. Which you is know. creepy. Yeah. And I've, yeah, I've chased that for years. I, as cheesy as Hellraiser 3 is, if I could make a movie that even is half that good, I'd be happy. Like that. And it is really cheesy. It is. It's super cheesy. Okay. But as long as we're all the same page. Any, anything that can reach out and change a kid, I think. Oh, and that's that. really, I think, what both of these choices are about. Yeah. There's going to be tons of people that hated Romeo and Juliet. There's tons of people that hated Hellraiser mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. movies in that vein. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't. No. Because they spoke to us. Yeah. We found that, fuck, how many characters have I named Spencer in my, especially early stories? Oh, really? Oh, my God. Uh, early stories. I use the name Spencer a lot in different scripts because it's Elliot Spencer. So, yeah, it, it never it never goes away. And it, it I don't want it to go away. You know? No, and it shouldn't. I think even um, after we hash out these movies here, as we've done tonight, um, there's actually a lot more in common. Because when we said this, yeah. and you like juxtaposed the two against another, and even Marty was like, "What the hell? <laughs> Hellraiser three and Romeo Juliet?" Well, I think it's the reason we didn't have this understanding at that age is because as this was happening to us as young people, we were fracturing as a team and pulling away from each other mm-hmm. very dramatically. Yeah. So we wouldn't have been able to, and I also wouldn't have been able to explain this all very well. I would have looked at it and gone. Why what, don't you like this? What aren't you understanding? Yeah. Because I couldn't, how it all made me feel. It's stupid, Bob. Yeah. What's wrong? Dumb. Turn that shit off. Fucking stupid, stupid movies. I don't, don't think I would have swore like that, but I. No. You just <laughs> grabbed a fishing rod, whacked me with it a few times, and run out of the house. And this is what is beautiful about a sibling relationship evolving into something where we can come to an understanding yeah. of each other's likes and dislikes. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's, I hope it gives you a little more insight into when you read my stories. Yeah. Um, you can see the through lines. So no, it's been, this was quite fun. It was, I was hope this like when I saw it on 35 last weekend, it, it was, was everything I was hoping it would be. It was lovely. So Jack, do you have a, a quote to start our wrap up? Yeah. As uh, Jackie's uh, episodic quotely corner. 
as we'll call it from <laughs> now like, on. Well, good. I was wanted to think of something that had a Either lot of today. cacophony in yeah. it. Yeah, quotely corner. Because if we're really going to downplay intelligent quotes, we'll call it quotely corner. Quotely corner. With Jacqueline Barrow. Um, oops. <laughs> That's <laughs> that, uh, that was me throwing my phone down. Yeah, the mic's connected to the desk. Oops. So... Um, you know what? I don't have anything that stands out. I mean, maybe I will end on something that's on my court. Mm. For never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. There is a secret song at the center of the world, and its sound is like razors through flesh. Oh, Jesus. And that's, I think, from both of our movies, (laughs) sums us up. Perfectly on this. Beautifully. Note. But yes, that was an absolute blast. We want to thank you guys for sticking with us. Uh, if we got a little, uh, off, we're, I'm, we're trying to get as we go along here. I think we're going to get a little better about staying on message. Of the point of this podcast of the of the understanding, but that comes with time. It does, and I think we just yeah. get so excited. We do. I get so fucking excited about Hellraiser. It's not even funny. Speaking about excited, do we want to uh, talk about what's coming um, next what's week? Coming next week. Next episode. Fuck. Yeah. Why next week? I'm so used to saying that. Okay. I said that what for is coming next episodes. time? Next time we are going to be having the battle of the prehistoric titans. Yes. Um, we are going to be talking about Cretaceous Park versus Cretaceous World. Well, if it was factually yeah. true, then <laughs> no yes. one wants to go to Cretaceous Park. <laughs> no. The Jurassic Park sounds pimp. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about Jurassic Park uh, in a slightly versus sense where we're going to be... Jack is a much bigger fan of Jurassic World, the return to this franchise, than I am. The movie pisses me the fuck off. Well, I love it, and Chris Pratt is so dreamy. But we both love Jurassic Park, and we have plenty of tales to tell from that. So episode three will be Jurassic Park versus Jurassic World. Yes. So until then, uh, like, subscribe, follow. You can find us on Facebook at uh, search 14 months apart. I'm going to be trying to figure out this whole Instagram, Twitter thing that I'm not very great at. Uh, we'll get keep, there. They keep deactivating the Twitter account, so that doesn't help. Uh, feel free to reach out to us uh, through social media, and we'd be happy to talk with you if you have any questions, comments, suggestions. Uh, you can also email us at 14 months apart podcast. 14 is one four. Uh, it's not spelled phonetically. Uh, But until then, we want to thank you guys again so much. And remember, a lot can change in 14 months.